The word of the Lord from Amos chapter five. Hear this word, Israel, this lament I take up concerning you. Fallen is virgin Israel, never to rise again, deserted in her own land, with no one to lift her up. This is what the sovereign Lord says to Israel. Your city that marches out a thousand strong will have only a hundred left. Your town that marches out a hundred strong will only have ten left. This is what the Lord says to Israel. Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not go to Beersheba. For Gilgal will surely go into exile, and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, or he will sweep through the tribes of Joseph like a fire. It will devour them, and Bethel will have no one to quench it. There are those who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. He who made the Pleiades and the Orion, who turned midnight into dawn and darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land, the Lord is his name. With a blinding flash, he destroys the stronghold and brings the fortified city to ruin. There are those who hate the one who upholds justice in court and detest the one who tells the truth. You levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on their grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. For I know, though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great are your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, the prudent keep quiet in such times, for the times are evil. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you, just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good. Maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the Lord God Almighty says. There will be wailing in all the streets and cries of anguish in every public square. The farmers will be summoned to sweep and the mourners to wail. There will be wailing in all the vineyards for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Sarah. Well, we're in week four of a sermon series in uh, the minor prophet Amos. It's a series called Let Justice Roll Down. And uh, see, the first week, there were some uh, background information about what was going on in Israel to help us understand uh, kind of the big theme of, of Amos as one of justice and, and injustice. So in this series, we're unpack, unpacking a biblical concept of justice. Uh, week two, we talked about the theological cornerstones of biblical justice, you know, 
human beings are created in the image of God. We all bear God's image and every human being everywhere is worthy of dignity and respect for that reason alone of infinite value. And God has also put his law on our hearts. So in some way that's hardwired into us and we all know that and are held accountable to it. That's the theological foundation of biblical justice. And then last week we kind of reviewed the way um, God is working out his purpose in the world. Remember God's call to Abram, that, that initial call. Uh, God said that he would make Abram become a great nation and that through that nation all peoples on earth would be blessed. Thus the, the blessed to be a blessing kind of thing that emerged. And God has always intended to work out renewal in the world through a redemptive community. Now back then it was Israel and Amos was calling them out. Of course in our day that's the church. And as that God's redemptive community, we are to be a community of justice in the world and, and for the world. And we're to see people as God sees them, you know, created in his image of infinite value, not as the world sees them. Now in Amos Day, Israel uh, had the community of justice thing exactly backwards. They were using and, and selling and fining the poor so that the wealthy could become wealthier. Now, outwardly, uh, Israel was a picture of success. I mean, every, everything was going swimmingly well. Their military victories leading to massive expansion. They had, they had expanded back to the, the kind of territorial size they were when Solomon's kingdom was in place. In fact, I think they had a little bit more land than that. The economy was booming. I mean, the, the vineyard business was flourishing. Loads of wealth being generated. And this led to a housing boom. If you go back and you read through the 17 verses we read today, you'll see a reference to stone mansions. And in last week's text, there was a reference to summer homes and winter homes. You know, the wealthy just kept building houses. The middle and upper economic classes were feeling safe and secure and blessed. And, and uh, from, a, from a religious perspective, on the outside, it seemed like things were flourishing. One commentator wrote this, there was probably no time in Israel's history when it was more active religiously than this time. In so many ways, Israel must have relished its prosperity and special position before God as his treasured possession. So by all worldly standards, everything's going great. And then Amos shows up to make the announcement we read today. Uh, now, now, last week I mentioned this, but when, uh, when the United Kingdom of Israel split and became the divided kingdom, Judah to the south and, and Israel to the north. Jeroboam I was the king of, that, of, of Israel uh, after, after the division. And to, to kind of cement his power, he did what the people wanted. He rebuilt all these sacred shrines on the high places, on the hills around Israel. And, and these included uh, uh, Bethel and Gilgal and Beersheba. And those were listed in our text today. Um, now, now, we don't know this for sure, but some scholars think that this announcement that Amos made today was made at one of those places, at one of those shrines on one of the, the high places in Israel. So, so imagine that scene for a moment. It, it's a big worship celebration festival. It would be akin to our, uh, our Easter or our Christmas. It's a big deal religious celebration. Uh, many have journeyed from home. They've made a pilgrimage to come to this great shrine to celebrate and worship and to give their, 
their sizable offering, hopefully in the sight of others. Because that was a big thing going on at this time too. And just imagine the location. You're up high. It's beautiful, stunning vistas. A- amazing temple. And life couldn't be better. It's a regular who's who of the upper class. Everybody who's anybody is there. Life is good. It's clear that God is blessing them and their nation. They couldn't remember a better season of life than Amos says this right in the middle of their big celebration of life party. Hear this word, Israel, this lament, this funeral dirge. I take up concerning you. Fallen is virgin Israel, never to rise again. Deserted in her own land with no one to lift her up. I mean, the the social friction couldn't be greater, right? This is their big celebration day, their, their worship bonanza, their big celebration of life party. And Amos shows up and says, hey, you're already dead. You're dead. And, and this is not an uncommon theme in the Bible, right? The New Testament equivalent would be the church of Sardis in Revelation 3. Here's what Jesus said to that church. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. The theologian John Stott wrote this of that church in Sardis, but I think it applies to what was happening in Israel too. I dare say its congregation was quite large for those days and was growing and even fashionable. Its program included many excellent projects. It was positively humming with activity. There was no shortage in the church of money or talent or manpower. There was every indication of life and vigor, but outward appearances are notoriously deceptive. And this socially distinguished congregation was a spiritual graveyard. And that was Israel during the time of Amos, a spiritual graveyard. Looks good on the outside, but all death on the inside. Jesus' phrase was whitewashed tombs. What a vivid word picture. Everything's clean and tidy like like a nicely kept garden on the outside, but inside is all dry bones and death. And the lesson is for us all, we can look good on the outside, but be spiritually dying or dead on the inside. But gladly, God didn't leave it there. Right? Through Amos, God didn't just tell them they were missing the mark. He told them what to do. He gave them the first step in finding their way back home to God, which we'll see in a few moments is also the first step toward justice. But before that, it's the first step back toward life, toward real life, toward God. This is what the Lord says to Israel, seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel, do not go to Gilgal, do not journey to Beersheba, for Gilgal will surely go into exile and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. God says, seek me and live. Don't go to Bethel or Gilgal or Beersheba. Those places all symbolized idolatry. God is saying, don't give your allegiance, your primary allegiance to idols. Give it to me. Seek me. This is getting back to the first commandment, right? You shall have 
No other gods before me. God wants to hold that primary place in our life. And idolatry is not just worshiping little figurines. I mean, idolatry is replacing God with something or someone else. That's what idolatry is. And whether we know it or not, all of us, every single one of us, including everybody who's not here today, everybody around the world, every single human being everywhere pays homage, grants their daily devotion to something. It's impossible to avoid that. I mean, the sex addict bows at the altar of sexuality. The unscrupulous hedge fund manager bows at the altar of the almighty dollar. The almighty dollar. Oh, my goodness. The spiritual language is factored right in. The generous, well-behaved, deeply committed humanist bows at the altar of an idea that if human beings could just overlook their differences and work together, we could fix the world and bring justice and peace to earth. Have no doubt, that is a religious commitment based on articles of faith. And I would argue that from what we can observe in the world, it has absolutely no foundation. Because if we, had, if we could fix it, we would have. I mean, all of us are deeply committed to something, some kind of belief structure. We might think of it as a personal being or an idea, or, but we're all committed to something some kind of system of assumptions about the world, about what's really going on in my life when I wake up every morning and open my eyes into this world in which I find myself alive. Some of us, I mean all of us, believe something. And at each of those systems, at the top of each of those systems is a chief, a head, a god. I mean the problem in Israel wasn't wealth, the problem wasn't that some people had a winter home and a summer home. That was hitting pretty close, wasn't it, cottage owners? That's not the problem. The Bible is often misquoted as saying money is the root of all evil. The Bible does not say that. Money isn't the problem. What the Bible actually says is this. For the love of money is a root of all all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I mean, money isn't a problem, but the love of money is a serious problem, a problem that can cause people to wander from God and which inflicts self-injury. Why would we do that? And Jesus put it this way, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So money can take that primary place in our lives, which is the place God wants. And when money takes that place, it becomes our idol, our God replacement. And one of the things that happens when people love money more than God, is that they begin using people to get money. Now we're getting to the problem in Israel. You levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on their grain. Because of a love of money, people were stepping on top of others to get more of it. 
See, when money is your God, you love things and use people. When God is your God, you love people and use things. Or at least you know you should. At least you know that's right. And that is why seeking the Lord is the first step toward justice. Right? Choosing to seek God is a redirecting of our attention from wherever it is focused now to Jesus and all that God has done for us in him. It's a redirecting of our attention. And as we do that, we begin to become more like Jesus. And the fruit of the Holy Spirit become more evident in our, in our lives, more manifest in our lives. And our hearts begin to come into alignment with the things that matter to God. And guess what? People matter to God. Justice matters to God. I know I've shared this story before, so you fifth regulars will remember it. A number of years ago, a pastor friend of mine challenged me to read through the Bible in 90 days. Uh, He had just done it and thought it was an amazing experience. I thought it sounded crazy. Like, why would you want to rifle through the scripture that quickly? I tend to like to read uh, more slowly and and kind of think about what I'm reading, especially when I'm reading the Bible. But I, I tried it, and I've got to tell you, it was an amazing experience. You know, sometimes you can't see the forest for the trees. When you read the Bible in 90 days, all you've got time for is the forest. When you're moving so quickly, you can't stop and and look at a tree at all. So you leave that experience with an understanding of some of the big themes uh, of the scripture. And and I walked away with a simple summary. I remember I wrote it in in my journal. A simple summary of what God hopes from his people big themes of the Bible, seek the Lord and bless the world. And in that order, seek the Lord and bless the world. If you think of it, it's another way of summarizing the law of God. When Jesus was asked to summarize the law, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Seek the Lord and bless the world. This comes up so many times in in the Bible. When we're not seeking the Lord, we are directing our attention elsewhere. So, let's stop that and redirect our attention to God. Or in in the words of the classic hymn, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. Or from Hebrews, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Seeking the Lord is redirecting our attention to to God and and pursuing God as if God is the most important person in the world, which he is. That's what seeking is. And, And the images in the Bible liken seeking God to tracking down lost treasure hidden treasure, a treasure worth selling everything else you have to find. Look at this. The Lord is with you when you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. It's an all-in kind of endeavor. So what God was saying to the Israelites through Amos was, turn to me with your whole heart. Seek me and live. 
So seeking God is a redirecting of our attention toward God. And seeking the Lord is the first step toward justice. Now, now when I say that, I don't want you to hear something I'm not trying to say. I'm not trying to say that the only step in justice is seeking the Lord. Christians are called to do justice, to act justly. The church is called to be a community of justice in the world and for the world. So I'm not trying to spiritualize the idea of justice, that we just seek God and everything's good. I mean, doing justice means doing something, actually doing something. All I'm trying to say, which I hope is an appropriate interpretation of what the Lord was saying to the Israelites through Amos, is that the first step in doing justice is to seek the Lord. And and I suggest this has obvious application in the current cultural moment regarding racial equity and racial justice. Now, I've had, I've had multiple conversations with white Christians, many from this church, who are struck by the pivotal nature of the cultural moment with regard to racial issues in our country. I mean, many are asking, what do I do? I mean, how, how do we do justice as Christians with regard to racial things? I mean, how do I contribute? How, how do we as a congregation contribute to a more just society? What should we do? There, now, there's a lot we, we can do and should do and will be doing because there are very real justice issues here and there have been for a long, long time. But, but I think I've also sensed in some a kind of despair almost around that. Like, what do I, I want to do something, but I don't know what to do. And, and there's this sense of, man, if I could press the button to fix it, I would. But that question, that, that feeling of despair, like, what do I do first? Well, this is it. This is what you do first if you're interested in doing justice. Every day. Keep presenting yourself to Jesus, relinquishing control of your life, searching your heart for idols, practicing vulnerability uh, around your areas of weakness, reading and thinking about scripture, praying and seeking the Lord and his guidance. Seeking the Lord is the first step in pursuing biblical justice because as we seek the Lord, we become more like Jesus and the fruit of the spirit becomes more evident in our lives and our hearts begin to align with what matters to God. And people matter to God. Justice matters to God. Now, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, that is true for all Christians on both sides of the justice equation. Meaning, it is true for the Christian who was contributing to injustice, either intentionally or inadvertently, and for the Christian who was experiencing injustice, either overtly or more systemically. For all Christians, seeking the Lord is the first step toward justice. Otherwise, we will fall into the world's pattern of justice, which is retributive and not restorative. Retributive justice is not biblical. You know, God says, vengeance is mine. 
It's not to be ours. And I would suggest it, it does not take very long to scan uh, uh, all of history and see that so oftentimes the, the, the oppressed become the oppressor for a season. And then it flips again. And then it flips again. And then it flips again. That is very predictable based on what we know of human nature. And what's needed for biblical justice to prevail is for Christians to seek the Lord. Otherwise, we fall into this pattern of, of retributive justice that basically uh, uh, operates by, uh, by the standard do unto others before they do unto you. And in our pursuit of justice, we will end up perpetuating the very kinds of injustice we hope to rectify. What's needed for biblical justice to prevail is true repentance and true forgiveness, all guided and empowered by the Holy Spirit and founded on the accomplished work of Jesus on the cross. Because only then, with the words of our Lord in our mind and the Holy Spirit guiding us, reminding us of everything that Jesus said, will we be able to love our enemies. And then our doing of justice will be biblical in nature, restorative and redemptive, not retributive and vengeful. Right, seeking the Lord is the first step toward justice. And, and as, as we close uh, today, you know, Amos spoke that word, seek the Lord and live. I, I think his primary end was not simply to say, seek the Lord so that you will become more just. He, he said, seek the Lord and live. Like have real life. Come back to life again. So I, I'm certain you can relate to this because I can. Maybe in your spirit you really got caught on that whole whitewashed tomb thing, the whole spiritual graveyard idea because we can look great on the outside and, and feel like we're spiritually dying or dead on the inside. But the good news is that the, the gospel shows that God speaks life into dead places, into dead people. Remember the great vision that God gave the prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel saw himself in a valley filled with dry bones and God said to him, Ezekiel, can these bones live? And he said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. And God said to Ezekiel, Son of man, prophesy to those dry bones. Say, dry bones. Hear the word of the Lord. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. That's gospel, friends. God speaks life into dead people. Seek the Lord and live. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that you speak life into us. We, we know, Lord, that we need you, that without you we are utterly lost. I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, we know the darkness within. We know our own propensities. We know uh, where we would be without you. Thank you that you make 
dead things come to life again. You make dead people come to life again. Thank you for pouring out life in us. Help us in our hearts turn to you fully. Help us to seek you as we would the greatest hidden treasure in the world. Uh, And God, make good on your promise that when we do that, uh, we will find or you will be found by us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We love you and we pray in your name. Amen.